You're listening to The Omni Show. Get to know the people and stories behind the Omni Group's award-winning productivity apps for Mac and iOS. My name's Andrew J. Mason, and today we talk to information architect Thomas Vanderwall on how he uses OmniGraffle and OmniOutliner. Well, welcome everybody to another episode of The Omni Show. I'm so excited about this one because we are honored to be able to have Thomas Vanderwall with us currently today. He's a brilliant mind, an information architect, and he's currently leading the DevSecOps strategy and planning at a large aerospace company. He's held many roles in the past, from leading product design and architecture, product efforts in R&D labs, or running skunk work teams, cross-functional teams to modernize and improve their work methods and patterns. And he's mentored information architects and knowledge managers. He's best known for coining the term folksonomy and initiating the term InfoCloud with its personal InfoCloud and local InfoCloud framings. Very smart guy. Thomas, we are honored to have you with us today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here. Been a huge fan for a long, long time. Between OmniGraphical and OmniOutliner, I do an awful lot of thinking in those tools and they help me think and work through things. One might have a general idea as to how OmniGraphle or OmniOutliner might be used in information architecture. Uh, OmniOutliner I could foresee as being something more sequential and OmniGraphle a lot more associative. But let's back up before we even hit that direction and talk us through what is an information architect? What do you actually do? How do you even get started down that career path? I'd somewhat stumbled into it backwards. So in sort of the late 90s, it was the days of the webmaster where, where you did everything. And one of the things that I had learned in grad school uh, in public policy was dealing with large data sets, being able to understand data, how the flows uh, work so you can do analytics. But being able to understand sort of the systems and the data and what you need to tell a story or to understand something. That training in grad school bubbled up into how I dealt with the web and web applications. So making things easy to find. One of the skunk work projects that I did starting in 99 and ran through 2001 was taking all the data that U.S. Department of Transportation captured and was required to capture and building a front end to all that data where you could mix, match, and marry data sets and get information about the data sets as well as run some lightweight analytics on data sets that you were mixing and matching, as well as being able to put that onto maps with, we had a one of the first versions of Esri's web interface for GIS. So being able to take all that information, bring it forward, being able to have metadata viewers that you could pop up as you were working with the data to understand analytics for continuous data, understand the different cardinality, as well as being able to understand changes in regulation, because a motorcycle is not a motorcycle every year. A pickup truck is not necessarily a truck every year, and the weights and all the different things that come into play shift. And so mm-hmm. if you are trying to have a good data set and analysis, you need to understand, I need this description of a motorcycle for this year, something that is equal to it to be able to run time series. And so digging into data, complicated data sets, complex data sets, a lot of that was in my training and how I viewed things. But then also just looking at sort of information systems, how something flowed through a system, what are the touch points? And then over the years of being able to work with two-sided systems where you have either internal customer service or citizen service, and then external customers or people out in the field in your own organization. And what are the touch points? Who is helping what? What systems are involved? And being able to take a 
schematic and a workflow of a system and understand where they go to customer-facing systems or user-facing systems where they are sort of a support-side system. Essentially, you're trying to tease out and understand how the people who are going to be using the system think about things, understanding their mental models, but also what are the terms that they use and how do they think about it in their own perspective. And I've worked on systems where you can have vastly different interfaces and vastly different terms based on whoever is using the exact same system. So it's essentially information architecture is making those understandings, understanding how people think about the system, how it fits into their life and their needs, and then being able to connect that to whatever the system is and what is in it and what service you're trying to provide. How much of an art versus science do you find this to be? Is pattern recognition a very sequential process for you that you go step by step and then you figure it out? Or do you see patterns just kind of start to emerge in a more artistic fashion and intuitively just say, nope, that's what people need to bring forward and visualize in a certain way? So it's yes to both of those pieces. One of it is being able to have, there are patterns and being able to tease things out, but part of building systems and understanding an organization's or a customer's need and what their problem sets are, quite often those are not well-defined. And I've done an awful lot of work with large enterprise, which quite often have really poorly thought through and poorly developed tools. And every now and then uh, someone will ask what I do and I was just like, I make work tools suck less. Um, And it's like people are hired to do a job and they are given tools that get in their way of helping them do their job. So being able to essentially tease apart what those pieces are, understand the underlying patterns, and sort of the the underlying theory and framework for the social or complexity lenses, which is just taking the small pieces as they stand alone. What are they? What are the sort of ground truth underneath them? And being able to ask people, does this describe your problem? Is there anything here? And if there is good, and then being able to if there is something, hold on to it, pick up another lens, walk them through that, and then just start layering the things that are relevant. And you can start seeing problems in things that are complicated where you can solve things from like various grids or complexity where when one thing shifts, everything shifts once you take an action and the, the paths change. And so being able to see those and quite often when you're dealing with people who are interacting with a system to interact with people on the other side. Humans are incredibly complex. Everybody has their own understandings and framings of the world, what the tools are, what their roles are, how they do things, and it's usually different than the person on the other end. You may think that you're doing making a nice gesture on, on your side to the other person and they're getting poked in the eye and you really don't have that understanding. And so being able to frame that and tell stories and One of the most important things is being able to essentially have a map that you can point to and talk about something. OmniGraffle is one of the tools that helps me do that very, very quickly and is incredibly helpful for that. There is this, I mean, we're humans. There's an emotional component here. And to be able to say, you know, when you see information that kind of pokes the box or, you know, messes with somebody, uh, to be able to say and look at it in a third party way and say, it's not you, it's not me. We're looking at this objective third party thing that's got to be really helpful. Yeah. And just being able to, one of the things that comes into play with a lot of organizational work systems that's their, is that they're collaborative. 
Office 365, you can have two people working in a spreadsheet at once, two people working in a document at the same time. And how do you do that? Or when you have multiple people being able to have comments and other things, being alerted when someone has made a comment in a document or made a change to it, so you can go directly to that and see that and have built up frameworks around those pieces and sort of the the distance that you are from a document and just sort of having a point system. And like if you're in the document seeing something, you get five points. If you're getting a notification about that in Slack or some other system, and it's like the word then was changed to this. Well, what's the paragraph? Where is this? You have no idea. And so it's like being able to bridge those together and seeing that distance, seeing it represented, what are the things that you need to sort of close that gap and have a better understanding. And so it's it's the sort of the visual framing, but then also understanding all the components that come into it. Quite often, we'll start doing round trips in a workflow between Omni Outliner and a mind mapping tool. Quite often, use Mind Mode or iThoughts, save things out as OPML, pick them up in Omni Outliner, flesh things out, move them around a little bit, pick it up in the mind mapping tool, sort of rearrange, look to see if there's subcomponents. And quite often, as they get larger, the mind map becomes problematic and you really need to start working just in the, the outline. And the outline becomes the framework for writing things out as well and building presentations and building stories that need visualization as well. So OmniGraphle and OmniOutliner, this is crazy. I'm looking at my notes. You have over 220 OmniOutliner files dating back to the early 2000s and over 550 OmniGraphle files dating back to the early 2000s. In what ways have uh, these products assisted you? With OmniOutliner, a lot of it's building sort of a framework for telling a story, understanding the various components, being able to see what is sort of connected to what and what are sort of subsets, whether it's a sort of a mental model and understanding, you know, if you're looking at social scaling and the different social scaling, and it's like one of the things having public policy background is it comes with an awful lot of social science at a grad school level and understanding you know, sort of encampments or you've got 20 people living in a small community community grows, gets up to about 500 people. The needs for 500 people are different than you know 20 people. There are certain tipping points and inflection points that surface along the way. So being able to frame all of those as you're working along uh, really helps. And one of the things that understanding social scaling from like an urban planning or an encampment model is that pretty much those exact tipping points are the same things that happen inside organizations. Those same tipping points happen. You can walk into a, a company or meet somebody for lunch and not know the size of their company and the problems that they're having, the things that they're adding to their organization will are really good clues as to the size of their company. Um, they can mention something. They're like, oh, you're about 75 people. And they're like, how do you know? And I'm like, you just said you had these problems. Those are problems mm-hmm. that you hit between 50 to 75 people. And so it's just pretty much at sort of a doubling to a tripling with the gap between the double and triple is sort of that room for error. Sort of the different organizations and different models, when you hit those tipping points, the pain gets much worse at different points, depending you know, if you're distributed or remote. Or if you're, you have a company over two floors, you're essentially getting things that if you're having two different offices in two different locations, because the vocabulary starts shifting uh, how people work on different floors can drift quite a bit. <laughs> That's wild. So entire cultures encapsulated within one floor of an office. Yeah, it um, it's kind of nuts. And when you 
when you know that it's a possibility, you start seeing it everywhere. And you're like, oh, yeah, of course. And people talking about problems that they have in their organization, how do you, you know, how do you start solving it? And some of their problems, it sounds like you have two offices. And they're like, no, we have one office. We're just on two floors. Well, there's, that's part of what's driving it. And it's like I had done work with a large bank in the uh, Northeast. And their headquarters was downtown the city. Their second largest office was 20 miles away. And people could hot desk and move, work from either location. And people would say that it would take them about a week or two to adjust to the different vocabulary for, you know, where's the supply closet? Where's the copier? How do I get this done? And just the vocabulary was drastically different in 20 miles. And they're like, it's like working in a different country or a completely different company in a completely different country using the same language. So when you're helping somebody out and you have all of this kind of complexity in front of you, uh, do you go for the lowest hanging fruit, the most obvious pain point first? Or is this more like the jar of salsa that fell from the kitchen cabinet onto the floor and shattered and you just, you know, we got to pick some corner somewhere. It doesn't really matter where. Let's just start cleaning. Yeah. There's usually in the lenses that I have, there's usually start off with like about three to six different lenses. And part of it is just helping people realize and more importantly, see, you know, what they have going on. And a lot of people are like, oh, it's just work. We're not really, you know, we're looking for a solution that does this. They're looking at the endpoint and not wanting to understand sort of the materials or your building environment. And when you're dealing with people that people are the materials and you need to understand the materials really well. And so it's just like, okay, here's the social scaling. Here's how teams work. Um, you know, here are the nine to 12 core tools or elements that people need to do their work in a team. And it's just like for good team function, these are the pieces and you, know, you can walk them through those. You can walk through sort of the social scaling piece, how teams work with teams, how they, you know, what's the ecosystem with inside an organization of somebody on a team asking a question Nobody on their team knows going out to a community of practice for that domain, asking a question, getting good responses back. Um, but you may have somebody else on the team going to a different domain, asking the same question and getting slightly different things back, which is quite often good. And then taking those two different domains and then bridging them together around that similar idea. And then being able to take that from the top down where you have a community of sort of expertise, which is usually sort of managers and highlighting things that are coming up and bubbling up from the bottom for good solutions and highlighting them across the company, tucking away in a knowledge base or a learning environment. And so you're essentially sharing your lessons learned across the whole company and making them easy to find. Thomas, do you find that once awareness is brought to a given situation uh, where change is needed, that change just kind of naturally emerges? Like, you know, you can't unsee it. There it is. And it's a lot more obvious now. Yeah. And a lot of times there is so much change and there's so much differentiation in sort of tools and working environment and the people running things and needing to make decisions about around tools and how things work. Having sort of that depth of understanding of what is needed, it just isn't there. And an awful lot of the large consulting companies are not going to that depth as well. So being able to bring in understanding of Here's how teams function, being able to run it, pairing it with a jobs to be done model and saying, how do you coordinate things? How do you manage a schedule? 
How do you know when things are due? How do you, where are your shared documents stored? And being able to give rating points, I'm like, hey, this has done really well. This has not really done well. And then you're able to say, okay, here are the things that you need to focus on for tools and particularly in a collaborative environment like a team or teams uh, working with other teams and other groups. And being able to understand that, but also being able to, to see it in examples really starts helping as well. Okay, this might be a horribly worded question, but I think you'll get the spirit of, of where I'm headed with it. We recently had Harvard professor Alyssa Goodman on the show as well, talking about her path to Newton diagram that she created in Omnigraphle. And the level of complexity and detail that was visually communicated with just one image uh, was mind-blowing. And when I go in to create a diagram myself, I, I tend to think very linearly or one-dimensionally how do you get to a spot where you kind of get the off-ramp of that circular thinking and see the multiple dimensions layered on top of each other? How, how do you have that holistic view of multiple layers of complexity? Does that make sense? Yeah. Some of it is walking back to finding a good metaphor and being able to take things out of the norm and making it really simple. Quite often in workshops and talks around complexity model and social work environment, have something, a very high level framework called the social progression of fire, where it's like you just start out with uh, sparks and sparks of ideas, like in a Slack channel or Twitter, and you're running across things and people are saying, hey, did you see that this is going on? Or our competitors looking at this? Or some of our customers are saying that they have a big need and I think we can solve it. Now, you have eight people that are talking about it and they may not be connected. It's just surfacing and saying, hey, you know, we'll take these sparks and build a campfire. And so have a safe place where you're essentially just doing a brain dump, sharing things with each other, capturing things, figuring out, is there something here? Should we build a new product? How do we support this? Could be as simple as bringing your dog to work. Or should we be doing this? But you have a small group that's looking at something, figuring out if there's something there, essentially figuring out also if they have enough of an understanding of the subject. And if they don't, add a couple other people to it. But it's essentially just a, a very small group that has interest in the subject, bringing them together, brain dump, capture it. If there's something there and you want to move forward, you're essentially adding more fuel to it and turning it from a campfire to a bonfire. So you're essentially opening it up to more people. You have a legal review. You have people who are working on packaging. You have people who are working on logistics, thinking how you can do it, global trade issues. Just all these different things start coming into view and you're like, can we do this? Do we want to do this? And then going, okay, yeah, we can, we can build this. And it goes from this campfire where there's a lot of people involved back down to a small team that can build it. And that last piece is the, you're building a torch. And so you're having something that's safe, reliable, repeatable that you continually can turn out. And so you've gone from the spark to the campfire, to the bonfire, to the torch. And you have different social models, different interaction models around essentially the same thing in the idea building and following that spark of a flame and getting it all the way to a, a torch where you, you can hand it off to other people. It has function. You can add it to you know, a building or a street post and it becomes something that's really helpful. And so taking a model like that, people start seeing that there's different interaction models at different scales and then walk it back to some things that are more closer to less metaphor and more reality and actual structure and looking at sort of small group dynamics 
you know, how do ideas come in? Or if there's pain points or other things that are surfacing, how do you collect them, gather them, bring them together in a group? And quite often you're using very different tools. And an awful lot of companies, and particularly large companies, they'll want to have one tool that's easy to manage, which doesn't necessarily exist. And if you can get a tool that can cover all those different social scales and dimensions and interaction models for work, that's a good thing, but they don't exactly exist. So you have to start thinking about how do we interoperate between things and being able to have essentially a link when you're at the torch and be able to track it all the way back to the spark. And it's like, oh yeah, there was this one piece and one of the sparks that came up that we didn't really capture along the way and we could iterate on it. Thank you so much for kind of walking us through one of those lenses as a, for example, I think that's really helpful. Uh, let's talk a little bit about this idea of folksonomy. This is a term that you had coined in the early 2000s about what was happening with traditional structure online as people were starting to give labels and names to things themselves. And it was like taxonomy, this idea of cataloging things as it related to just everyday folks doing it. And when things like Flickr and Delicious were coming out, you really saw tagging starting to kind of come to the forefront. How has that changed over the last decade or so? How has the vision kind of shifted or morphed in any certain direction? And what do you kind of see happening right now with that idea? There's a, a few different things. One, I still see it around and quite often seeing it inside organizations and inside groups where they're the folksonomy is essentially a person tagging something. They're tagging an object in their own vocabulary that's shared out. And so most taxonomy systems are two-dimensional. You have an object and a tag. You don't know who put it on there. And one of the things that I had framed out really early on was sort of the, the benefits and the detractors of having a taxonomy, and then the benefits and the detractors of folksonomy. And the thing with the folksonomy is that it's always updating. You're essentially doing it for free because people are putting things on there so that they can refind it uh, later and refind it themselves. It doesn't mean that it's necessarily good for everybody, but you also can start understanding. You know, somebody in engineering is working on something; they have a certain label. Somebody in marketing is working on the same thing, and they have different labels and tags for it. And you could have somebody in uh, taking that same concept and working uh, business models around it, and they're using different vocabulary and terms on it. But essentially, they're talking around the same object. So being able to take that object, look at what one person has put on it, find other things with that term, and then being able to take another term, look at it from somebody else's perspective, other tags that they've put on it, and other things that they've tagged with that term. And you start getting this relatively rich synonym repository for bringing people together to essentially reduce error, but also being able to build out the taxonomy uh, so that people can find what they're looking for. And can I ask, uh, what are you seeing emerge as this trend takes a more personal kind of direction? One of the things that's been interesting is there's enterprises that are doing this internally. When I saw Delicious in sort of late 2003, early 2004, it didn't click as to what it was doing, which is somewhat ironic because it was essentially the solution to a problem that I had working for a legal trade association in the mid-90s. And we were using CompuServe as the internal member social platform and allowing people to share briefs and share experiences from different cases or look for help. And there was the ability to add categories or tags to things, but it was a flat field uh, of 255 characters. And one of the things that 
became quickly apparent is that there was three different groups within the organization with three different mental models for what things should be called. And so, and then you also had sort of, you know, was this something that the organization put out there? Is there sort of a preferred authoritative term that's out there? We were talking to CompuServe an awful lot and their product folks. And it's like, what we really would like to do is put something out there, be able to add sort of categories or organizational tags or labels to things, but then individuals tag it in their own vocabulary and terminology for their own collection. And so this was like 96, 97 and CompuServe was like, God, oh, this will be coming when we move from the desktop to the web. And that'll be in you know 12 months and 12 months turned into like three to four years. And it didn't quite have it then. And people had moved off to AOL and to all sorts of other places. And when Joshua Schachter had built Delicious, I wasn't thinking in that model that he was building essentially what we were looking for. But I didn't really understand Delicious until I was looking for something. And I couldn't remember, was looking for something from an information architecture term. And there wasn't a whole lot there that had been collected or shared. But I knew that the knowledge management community had just huge volumes and background. But I couldn't remember the term that the knowledge management community used. And I finally found a resource that I was looking for in Delicious, and somebody had tagged it with both the information architecture term and the knowledge management term. So I clicked on the knowledge management term, and all of a sudden I had like 30 resources. And it's like, ah, this is phenomenal. And then we got into, there was an information architecture uh, news group and listserv. And one of the things that information architects like to do and spend an awful lot of time and attention doing is naming things and trying to figure out what something is called. And people are like, well, what do we call this thing? And I was like, oh no, this is going to be months of what do we call this? I want to talk about what it's doing. And I had just thrown out folksonomy just to keep things moving because it's regular folks essentially doing taxonomy and it's stuck and the conversations moved on but just had such a deep fascination going back to like the needs in the 90s, having tool like Delicious. And then, you know, everything from Amazon had tagging on it, which got to be very performative and sometimes insanely funny. There's a whole lot of different ways that sort of self-tagging that's openly shared out in ways that it can work. But one of the things that I'm finding interesting, like within the last year or two, is sort of where it has morphed to somewhat in personal knowledge management tools, things like Obsidian and things with backlinks. And as certain tools kind of morph and change, how are you carrying this information with you? I mean, uh, hardware gets updated, there's new software. How do you kind of carry this stuff along with you for the journey? So over the last probably 10 years, 10 to 15 years, I've been keeping text notes. And then about 2010, I turned to Markdown notes for all sorts of different things. And I thought I had around 1,200 notes that I had been keeping with NVAlt. But I also had some uh, subdirectories underneath that. And it's probably around 4,000, 3 to 4,000 notes. And some of it will be early ideas for things that turn into blog posts or articles. I layered Obsidian over that, and that became my vault. And all of a sudden, little by little, I will search for something and I will find different pieces. I'm like, oh, that's connected to this term or this mental model. One of the things I also have in there is one of the directories is around the social lenses and complexity lenses. So I'm now taking all these different ideas, tying them back, being able to tie them together a bit, but also being able to see connections that I hadn't really been able to see before, which is is one of the things I really like an awful lot. And I have used Devon Think as well. 
I've been using Devon Think since about 2005 and have around 70,000 objects in there. So anything of potential interest gets put into a PDF and tucked into Devon Think and have done some expert witness work and canonical pieces that are linked to from Wikipedia that are just completely gone from the web. They're not in the Wayback Machine or anything else, but I have copies of them. Copies of the white papers, copies of companies' marketing materials, all sorts of different things, as well as sort of discussion groups. Anything of potential interest, I just tucked away and can search it, and it does this relevance, sort of fuzzy relevance engine work. And so I will use Dev and Think to find things. Quite often, I'll go to Omni Outliner, and then in sort of the notes underneath a, a piece, I'll link back to something in Dev and Think. And one of the things that I have in my directories that Obsidian is sitting over and correlating and connecting things is my Omni Outliner files and my OmniGraphle files. So now I can take my graphics in OmniGraphle, put a file link to them where it is relevant. And it's like, oh, I've got six different versions of this visualization of a story uh, that's related to this idea. And now I can find them easily and then open them up and be able to pull them into presentation or... Uh, when I'm trying to explain something, pull it together more easily. I see this really cool story arc emerging where you have all the thumbtacks on the map and over time you're just trying to figure out, okay, how do I draw all the strings that connect these things together in a new way or a fresh way that helps me see things in an up-to-date way? Yeah. Every now and then it's getting to about once or twice a week where just going through and adding backlinks into you know, a blog post or a note from eight to 12 years ago. And that will connect to other things. And then I'll go out to the graph view, which I didn't place much value in. I just thought it was like a neat little thing. I'm like, wait, what's this connected, this node connected to this other large node? It's an interesting way to start exploring and just connecting ideas and finding things that are, are relevant. It goes back to that you know, listening to people talk about sort of Obsidian and other things with the backlinking, it's very, very similar to that folksonomy model and personal information management and personal knowledge management that essentially using your own terms and using those backlinks as hooks to pull things closer to you that are, are connected. And then sort of taking that to the next step for the folks that are doing evergreen notes and publishing out them out to the web. There's a woman, uh, Maggie Appleton, who just has a really, really nice collection of evergreen notes and really nice visual explanations of things. Taking that very personal collection and then making it more public and sharing it, and then other people are picking up those, putting them in their own collections um, and sharing those out. It's a, sort of the early days of sort of folksonomy, early Web 2.0 of being able to have this nice web of knowledge that's interconnected and being able to find facts, being able to find proof and sort of the foundations for things somewhat easily and being able to understand them going back to like the Vannevar Bush days, all of that sort of, you know, one day we will have this. It's getting close to being that day we, where we have it. It's so cool to kind of catch the circular nature of this as well. You know how web was used to be one thing and then a web 2.0 made it kind of the same thing, but with some fresh ideas attached to it. And this idea of info clouds uh, becoming a very personal information repository that's tagged. And then now all of a person's personal thought clouds can be tagged and then shared with another person's. It's almost like repositories of information. It's just so cool to see. Uh, one or two more questions. 
Can you tell me about an instance where either OmniGraffle or OmniFocus, uh, you've been working in one of those pieces of software and there's something missing. You're looking at all these different systems and levels of complexity and by taking all of that information and externalizing it, suddenly something just popped out at you like, oh, that was the missing piece. That's what I've been looking for. Yep. Bouncing between a mind map and Omni Outliner and sort of early stages of discovery or trying to work something through and thinking something is just sort of a two-sided problem set and then realizing that we need to connect not only people to things and sort of stages of work, but we also have automations and different systems. And it's like, oh, when we're, you're moving across different systems or different stages of your work, um, you may be touching different tool sets. And it's like you get to a certain point and it's like, oh, we hand off to another team. This team is out. And it's like, huh, how do we, how are we tracking across these things? And it goes from being a two-dimensional problem or a, an easy set of two things of like person and roles, roles and tools to being what type of person are we looking at or what type of individual? Is it a system? Is it a person? What roles, how many different roles are roles tied to different stages of the development and the workflow process? And it's like, okay, now we've got to think about this went from something really easy to describe and to draw and to explain to something that gets a little bit more complicated and takes a little bit more thinking. But when you can take that next step and sort of embrace sort of the, the very complicated you know, merging into complex, it really helps everybody understand things. And you're able to say, oh, you know, this process, we thought it would matter here. It doesn't come into play for three or more steps in, in our workflow process. It's like, we don't need to think about that now. Oh yeah, switch those layers off. <laughs> it cracks me up too, because it's like, how many new insights did you have? Uh-oh, just one, just one new insight. And how much did it affect on that drawing? <laughs> oh, a whole lot. Yep, <laughs> yep. One of the nice things about OmniGraffle is like, I can, sometimes I'll start sketching in pencil on paper and you have legal copy paper sitting landscape in front of me and i'll just start taking notes and sketching things and then it's like forget it i gotta go to OmniGraffle. and then just being able to move things around i'm like wait there's different layers so start working with turning layers on turning off okay there's another dimension to this and you can start working with those different dimensions i can get something done in OmniGraffle in about a third of the time that i can get something done in visium and without the swearing <laughs> I love it. I, I don't know if that's an official tagline we could use, but I love it. Before we wrap up, I'd love to hear just a little bit more about how do you think with multiple layers and this idea of lenses, you know, when you're looking at data and trying to get that perfect picture or that, I guess it can't be perfect, but that accurate picture of what's going on and you're turning on and off layers and seeing multiple dimensions, how do you think in that way? Like one of the things when I go back into the social elements list or the social lenses list in OmniGraffle. It's like it's now up to 76 objects. And it had started from like one of my friends on Twitter saying that he was working on a 3D project with data. And he's like, oh, you know, data in 3D is really complicated and a headache. I'm like, oh, you should try social. It's 7D or 8D, which led to people asking on Twitter, what are the seven, you know, what's the 7D or the 8D? And over you know, three or four days, I was up to like 12 or 15 sort of high level dimensions. And people had long been asking, how do you think? And part of it is I sort of think in these smaller components and just sort of do deep dives. I'm like, oh, I need to understand this. 
around 2010, I think it was about a year and a half later, I had around 40 social lenses and sort of was sticking around that for a while. And it was about the time that Dave Gray reached out and he was, his company had been bought and the company that had bought him focused heavily on, on social. And he's like, I really could use a good understanding of your social lenses. Um, he's like, a lot of the social stuff just isn't making any sense. And walked him through all 40, somewhere between 40 to 44 lenses, but it took about four full days. And he went through two cases of notepads or note cards. And we would do like a five hour or six hour session. He's like, I gotta, I, we gotta stop because he's like, I just finished a case of note cards. I gotta go out and buy some more. But it was just sort of walking through that and then just sort of like looking at it now, it's up to 76 lenses, probably about 15 of them or so are other people's work, which I find really helpful and continually point to others' work so I don't need to create it. And it's really helpful. But then also I've got pieces that are highlighted in yellow that are, I don't know where it fits with everything else. Other people's work is in blue. But when I do a full expansion of it, I'm coming up on a thousand rows in Omni Outliner. A couple of times I've started down the path of doing a book and realized that I can probably take a workshop, a half day to full day workshop, half day is about 12 lenses, full day is about 15, and do a book on that. And then there's some where I'm just like, this one thing could turn into a book just because there is so much in it. And it's just capturing that accretion of knowledge and understanding and just sort of having a way to structure it. Even in a thousand rows, it is insanely high level and doesn't begin digging into anything. And I've got, that's why I tie things back to my, you know, markdown notes that I keep in my uh, note directories. So I'll flesh something out that'll maybe start toward an article or a blog post or something. Just sort of keep track of it, sort of keep the state of it and have a checkbox for, yep, this concept is written up and I look at it and there's not a whole lot that I've fully written up. Uh, maybe have about 20 things or so. And do an awful lot. And a lot of it is just sort of for memory in presentations and workshops. And so we'll go back to those and we'll link keynote presentations to it and other things that I've created and OmniGraffle files to it. And so it's trying to find the connection between how Obsidian and lines in the outline, how to better connect those two, but not quite there yet. I get sidetracked with what's in, what's in my notes. <laughs> Thomas, this has been an incredibly fruitful conversation for me. I imagine for our listeners as well. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, if folks are interested in catching up with you or connecting with the work that you're doing, uh, how can they do that? Probably trying to figure out what I pay attention to. Um, <laughs> like sending an email to thomas at vanderwall.net is probably the easiest way. Then on Twitter, have Vanderwall, that's a private account, and InfoCloud, those two accounts. And I look in on those a little bit, but also they push out to email and also push into Slack as well. And so we'll usually notice it eventually there. That is excellent. Thomas, it's been a great honor of uh, mine and all of ours to be able to have you as a guest uh, on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Great. Thank you. Keep up the uh, making great products. And thank all of you for listening today. Hey, we're curious. Are you enjoying the shows? Are you enjoying uh, learning how people are getting things done utilizing Omni software and products? Drop us a line at The Omni Show on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you there. You can also find out everything that's happening with The Omni Group at omnigroup.com slash blog. 